Welcome to Spiritual Naturalism Today, a conversation on science, nature, and spirituality. Our program is sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society with host Daniel Strain. Secular Buddhism. What is secular Buddhism? That's what we'll be talking about today as well as Ted Meisner, who we'll be interviewing. Ted Meisner is the executive director of the Secular Buddhist Association and host of SBA's official podcast, The Secular Buddhist. His background is in the Zen and Theravada traditions, and he is a regular speaker on interfaith panel discussions. Ted works at the University of Massachusetts Medical School Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Health, Care, and Society doing community development and teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction. Ted, thank you so much for being on our program today. I really appreciate your time. And uh, like I told you when we invited you, your name was one of the first ones to come up in our minds as a person we really wanted to hear from. So I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I am so very glad to be here, Daniel. Thank you so much for the invitation. And Glad to see Jay and Brandon here with us as well. This is a really good group you've got, and it's just such an honor to be here and to have seen how beautifully the Spiritual Naturalist Society has grown from the beginning. You've done a fantastic job with it, so thank you very much for your efforts on this. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for mentioning my co-hosts who are here with me today, Brandon Newberg and Jay Forrest. Um, So all three of us will be interviewing you and asking questions and picking your brain. Um, And uh, thanks for those kind words about the society. For those that don't know, the Secular Buddhist Association is a partner organization of the uh, Spiritual Naturalist Society. We offer each other moral support and help spread each other's announcements and uh, work together because um, many of our members have shared interests. So I think I'm going to start with the obligatory question. (laughs) You know what it is. (laughs) Give me the elevator speech. What is secular Buddhism? So for those of you who may have visited a Buddhist center and you've gone in and you wanted to learn how to meditate, because you've heard some things about it in the popular press, and you found a group of people who are very sincere, very nice, very good meditators, that might have started chanting, And you might have noticed statues of a religious figure proudly displayed in the center. And maybe that felt a little off, that there is a bit of cognitive dissonance with your own background as a contemporary Westerner. Maybe there was a conflict with your own religious beliefs and things didn't quite feel right. So secular Buddhism is a way to approach a tradition, the Dharma, Buddhism, while still maintaining a secular approach. And that's probably the more complicated word of the two. What we mean by secular, at least from the SBA standpoint, and there are lots of different ways to look at this, and we'll go into a few of those. When we use the word secular, we don't mean it as an antagonistic way towards religious traditions at all. We mean secular as pertaining to this world, this lifetime this seculum, this area. And so our focus on the Buddhist tradition and the practices therein and how it works with the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and what we do, the focus is about what we know in this life. 
And it's not discounting that there are effects that occur after we pass away. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King are gone, but certainly their effects are lasting beyond their lifetimes. And we feel that that's a very valid way to look at things like karma and fala, the fruits of our actions, our volitional actions. So in a nutshell, secular Buddhism is about what we do in life and how we relate to one another. That's just one approach, and there are lots of different ways to look at it. Great question, though. Thank you. And uh, I was going to ask about that, actually, um, what secular means in terms of when you're talking about a non-theistic religion to begin with. Obviously, it means more than just about the issue of deities. Um, and I think that's actually a good question, because I think most people, at least in the West, their experience of Buddhism is already a secular Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center and some of the more popular meditation centers, you'll see that uh, other than, you know, the figure up in front, they really don't teach uh, some of the more um, non-scientific uh, aspects of uh, Buddhism, such as the rebirth and uh, reincarnation ideas. The Tibetan Buddhism, for example, has a thing called bardo, which is the in-between stage that they believe that once you die, you go into this transition place and then you re- are reborn. Um, and, and some of this stuff just isn't actually taught in a lot of the meditation centers. Yeah, you're right, Jay. That's a very good point that what we mean by secular is usually where the biggest exploration occurs. And I agree with you that many people who are practicing Buddhists who might identify that way might fall into a spectrum of what we might think of as secular, although they may not have really thought about it that way themselves. One reason I do use that qualification is that picture you're, for example, a Southern Baptist and you walk into Spirit Rock and you see a statue of Gautama. It's probably not going to strike you that this is a secular center simply because they're not teaching some of the supernatural assertions or stories that are certainly a part of the tradition. They're going to see this as a religious practice, and they would be right from their perspective. So there's always a little bit of flex we need to have with, well, whose perspective are we taking? It might be more religious for some. There are those in the atheist community who would view my practice as being very religious, simply because they'll see me lighting incense for meditation without really knowing why I'm doing it. I'm not lighting it to my ancestors. I'm lighting it because it smells nice, because it sets a tone for my practice and for what my intention setting is as I do a particular meditation session. So secular Yeah, secular may mean different things to different people. Uh, For some, it does mean an aversive response to uh, the hierarchical structures that we might find in a religious tradition. It might be a pushback on the supernatural assertions. Uh, I also don't find those of value to me in my practice. But one thing I have learned over the years, and my my way of uh, thinking about this has changed and grown over time, is that it's not really for me to say that's not a value for you either because I don't find it so. I think that's a good point. Um, when I think of secular, I think of it as more a, a wide-encompassing and open-hands 
you know, we're not, you know, saying what can and can't be. We're just opening our hands to everybody. Those that. Yeah, it's a big tent. Yep. It's a big tent. That's a very good, very good. Yep. Yeah. And the focus really being, I think one of the advantages that uh, secular Buddhism has as I would suggest as a fourth tradition in Buddhism is that it is based on our human experience, whether you're that Southern Baptist or an atheist or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew, whatever your particular um, ideological stance is. What we do in secular Buddhism, how we approach that is really based on what happens with us as human beings when we suffer, when we run into something that causes us to pause and maybe question deeply. And how do we how do we deal with that? How do we perhaps create a little space in the moment to be more responsive rather than reactive? That's really the heart of a secular Buddhist practice. And it's a it's a practice because that's not easy to to yeah. get to get that balance to get that perspective. It's a practice, not a perfect. <laughs> exactly. Very good. Very good. Yeah, you're already kind of getting into uh, something else. I was going to ask about, which is some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with Buddhism itself, and so uh, let's flip the question around then, and uh, let me ask, what is Buddhism specifically? The baby part of the uh, baby bath water thing that naturalists would find useful appropriate and appealing yeah i think that's a that is also a really good question and and this also uh, aligns very closely with secular humanist views about things uh, the part that i often find helpful and why I identify as a secular buddhist rather than secular humanist is I agree completely with the Secular Humanist Manifesto. If you've ever read that, it's a great piece of work. That's a terrific what. The piece for me that is missing is the how and the practices, what we do, how we get better at being excellent to each other, to paraphrase another Ted, is through a secular Buddhist practice. Now, when I say the, the B word, I'm typically not referring to the religion side of it. So often you'll hear people uh, on the same thread on comments online, you'll hear some people say, it's not a religion. It's, you know, a, a psychological practice or an X or a Y or a Z. And for them, that may very much be the case. That is one way to approach Buddhism. For others, it really is a religion with all of the trimmings. And one could hardly observe a Tibetan ceremony in the Vajrayana tradition or Tibetan traditions that and say, no, 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 that's not religious at all. Yeah, it kind of is by any definition that you might cough up for a religion, including supernatural assertions and deities. So there is a, a wide way in which this has evolved over time. We have Theravada as you know, the old school religion of Buddhism with one of the longer lineages that uh, hails back to the Pali Canon, so we call it, which is the quite a, a very extensive set of three baskets uh, of information about Gotama, the Buddha and, and his time and commentaries and a whole bunch of really wonderful, wonderful stuff. That's just, you, you can get lost in the library at, 
Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. There's just so much wonderful stuff there. And then Mahayana, which grew out of a schism in that, until that point, single core trunk of the Buddhist tree, which led to something a little bit different, where instead of being focused more on personal enlightenment and ending of the rounds of rebirth, it introduced the bodhisattva ideal and shifted the goal towards emancipation for all beings. Again, a bit of a religious assertion. And then another version, a, a third of the main branches of the tree is what we would call Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana. And for those who are listening who know that there, it's a lot more complicated than that, you're right. This is just broad strokes. It's an overview. <laughs> Uh, and I would suggest that secular Buddhism is a new fourth branch of that tree because it is unique and distinct in its focus. It still honors the other traditions. Most of us who are or would define ourselves as secular Buddhists have an active practice or a background with that tradition. Wouldn't you say that in secular Buddhism, it's actually a interaction with Western secular culture where we actually can look at the practice of Buddhism and the beliefs of Buddhism and actually separate those and look at it in such a way that we say that there's many practices that bring us into the present moment, into the reality of the present, that don't need the belief system. And Secular West gives the ability for us to get a different perspective of Buddhism. So that it, the four the four noble truths become the the four tasks. Right, right, right. As we as we talk about our, our friend Stephen Batchelor and his uh, interpretation uh, of Buddhism, I'll digress for just a moment to uh, give a brief overview of what the heck we're talking about with those four noble truths in more contemporary terms uh, that might be might resonate a little bit more with uh, a naturalist worldview or secular worldview. Um, the first of the what we call the noble truths, these are ideas and things that we we actually see in practice in the world, is that there is dissatisfaction. There is dukkha is the word often bantied about in Buddhist circles, uh, roughly translated as suffering or pain. There's some discomfort in life. Nothing is ever perfect. We stub our toes. We get sick. Bad stuff happens. The second noble truth is about well, why does that happen? Why do we suffer? And it comes to the idea that, well, we, we find this dissatisfaction, this suffering, because we're, we're clinging, we're grasping. And it's not that we're not going to feel pain when we stub our toes. That's going to happen. That's part of life. What happens next is we're really attaching to the idea of not wanting to feel this. And our suffering is introduced by that grasping, by things, wanting things to be different than they are, having what we don't want, wanting things we don't have. Third noble truth takes it a little bit further and asks the question, well, can there be another way? Can there be something else? Can there be a, a way of being that doesn't involve this clinging, knowing that bad stuff is still going to happen in life? We're still going to stub our toes. That's part of the living experience. But how do we end, extinguish, or attenuate, I would say more on the reduction side rather than eliminating, any kind of suffering whatsoever? Is that possible? Yeah, it is. 
And then the fourth noble truth encapsulates all of that in a way to do it, which we refer to as the eightfold path, which is different kinds of things we can do in the world to help with that. And it's it's interesting to me that the the eightfold path and these are things like right speech, right action, right livelihood. And when we we use the word right, we don't mean it in a uh, an ideological dogmatic stance. We mean it as ways in which are most likely going to lead to positive outcomes for self and others. Kind of wiser reactions, wiser responses to. Yeah. It's skillful, all all these great terms that we use to try to describe that wide arc. So for Daniel, getting back to your original question, uh, what's appealing about it is there's specific practices that you can do, not just meditation, but ways in which you engage with others and live your life. It's really about a way of being that helps you with the dissatisfaction you may find in your life. Yeah, I was going to say that uh, your description can be unfolded and unfolded and unfolded deeper and deeper. There's such a wealth of very careful observation and thought in the Buddhist tradition, in the Buddhist canon of ideas, that all of these things, they sound very straightforward, but then... All of that depth and complexity leads to specific procedures by which you can shift your perspective over time. Exactly. And and it should be complicated because it doesn't shy away from life is complicated. That's one of the, the things that we practice, particularly in meditation, is just becoming more aware of what's going on, including that sometimes difficult work of noticing our own actions and our own attitudes and our own words that maybe are not so helpful. How often have we said, oh, I wish I hadn't said that too late. (laughs) And these are ways to help with it. Now, one thing I did want to do, Jay, is uh, explore a little bit one of the statements that you had, because I I can feel in the background there are people who are, are kind of gnashing their teeth right now about the cultural separation that we can take out aspects of it and one of the the big question is can you do that can you exactly and i i think the that is one of the more interesting avenues of growing and exploring that's occurring right now is first we must recognize that each one of us always is a product of our culture so to say that oh we're removing cultural trappings oh no well we're we're changing what's in there to match our own cultural trappings that we're just not as aware of. Yeah, in the West, it would be a naturalistic, uh, a secular uh, culture, a culture that's more in the, you know, the sensory, the world that we touch, feel, see, interact with. Increasingly so, particularly in 20th century, that we're more and more we're a secular culture. Now, some of those aspects of that culture are a perspective that's inherently sort of third person objective, Mm -hmm. like a scientific approach to things. And sometimes that can get in the way of understanding some Buddhist concepts um, because they very much involve a, um, an introspection and observation of the, from the first person sense 
Um, Subjective. Yeah, right. And they're still fair game for exploration. It doesn't mean that we ignore them, but it does mean that as all of us on on this uh, this panel are talking about, we don't set aside that our experience is our experience. Now, we might have thought, ah, I left my body and I was actually astrally projecting and floating above the house. Well, we can test that in the real world (laughs) and we can know that that is not true. We can identify that, you know, but one of the things we don't want to do is discount. There's some interesting neurological stuff going on here. What's happening in the brain? Yeah. Some interesting things to learn about who we are ourselves. And, um, so I wanted to be sure and cover, uh, some other things too. You mentioned humanism and whether Buddhism is a religion or not. Um, in a way, some people might say it could be a religion and it could be secular. Right. I was noticing that if you look at the first humanist manifesto, it has a much more religious character to it. Um, yes. it was signed by, uh, pastors and, and ministers and, their idea was that humanism was going to be a a new evolution of religion right, right. rather than an alternative to it. And so uh, in a way, we've kind of been talking along those lines when we talk about these different Buddhisms, uh, you know, a Western or secular Buddhism alongside the other Buddhisms. But my wife, Julie, asked uh, a while back, does secular Buddhist, does secular Buddhism Include bowing bells and incense. And you already mentioned incense. <laughs> bells and smells. <laughs> yeah, and I have to say that that was one of the things that drew me to it. Not, not because I thought of it as, um, you know, giving some homage to spirits or something, but because there's a whole, um, sort of emotional and, uh, perceptive and subjective set of experiences that we naturalists in, especially in the humanist tradition have been very much absent and uh, not looking at. And so I think those things have very specific functions in a spiritual practice that can do things that an intellectual approach alone cannot ever really accomplish in terms of transformation. And of course there's variability with every a person for a number of people having the bells and smells is a complete turnoff and that that in itself makes it very difficult to get into a space of openness that is so helpful for one's practice and just noticing what's going on Um, for others having the bells and the smells again we were just talking about a tool that we use inside timer i use bells i light incense but again that helps set the tone for my practice. And for people who are listening who might be thinking, oh, why do you need to do that? Well, picture your workday. You've had a long day, been kind of rough. Do you turn on some music? Do you maybe turn on the lights? If you're out on a date, what do you do? Well, there's, there's setting a tone, setting a feeling tone for whatever activity that you're in to help foster growing in that activity. This is the same kind of thing for many people who do a more secular approach to it. It may look very much the same from a religious practice and being done for wholly non-supernatural reasons. It's perfectly natural reasons based on how my neurobiology responds to quiet and lower lighting and inviting that calm 
And we see this happen in our, our heart rates. We see this happen in uh, the different kinds of activity in the brain. It simply helps us practice. It's a, a way to a way to engage with just being present with what's happening right now. So, Ted, would you say that one way of looking at it is saying it is a psychological rather than a metaphysical perspective? We're looking at it psychologically. When I light the incense, it is dealing with my psychology, getting me to focus. This is the time to come back from my mind wondering to the future problems or the past difficulties. It's a way to bring my psychology to the present moment. But it has nothing to say about what exists outside of the physical universe. Yeah, when typically with a, a secular approach, I'd say, Jay, that's a very good way uh, to look at it is for someone like me, uh, maybe not so for others, but for someone like me, what you describe, that's what makes sense. Right. That's what I'm doing. It's... Um, I, this is training the mind, even in the tradition, Bhante Gunaratna in uh, his books. And for those who don't know who that is, he is the, the senior Theravada monastic on this continent. As I said, we're, we're training our brains. We're training the mind. We're training the heart. And that's, that's what, that's what we mean by this. Dalai Lama says the same thing. He's, uh, in many ways, very secular <laughs> in his approach. Yeah. Yeah. I've said before that the uh, one presentation I gave one time that the humanists and the Christians, for example, sometimes fall into the very same kind of view in that they both tend to look at everything as being about this list of beliefs, this list of stances. You know, these are my opinions on things or these are my positions on things. And that somehow makes them what they are or makes them this or that label. And what I liked about Buddhism when I first encountered it was that it was the first time that I uh, saw a kind of practice that was about uh, that a kind of system that was a practice. It wasn't just a list of, of opinions. It was our positions. It was a, a practical means of self-development. And that's what we try to help promote in the society. And uh, that's why secular Buddhism is such a welcome part of our, our pantheon of <laughs> traditions that we uh, respect. Yeah, it's one of the things that I, uh, I run into frequently is people will send email or their post on the site. I want to be a secular Buddhist. How do I join? And the, just the inherent problems with that phrase is that there's, and I, I have to really uh, couch my response very carefully because I want to honor the position the person's coming from of this is how this kind of stuff works. And the idea that actually there's, there's nothing to join. This doesn't cost anything. Um, in the same way that how do I join to become a runner? It's like, well, you just, you just run. <laughs> yeah. something you do how do, I, how do I join as a breathing person just breathe it's okay and that's very different because people want to have they want to have lists they want to know but what is your ideology and I say you know look at our guiding principles but that's as that's as much as we're probably ever going to go into it these broad strokes because it is meant to be inclusive it is about our human experience and we don't want to try to nail down here's what your experience must be based on what we've decided no your experience is your experience 
and situations and each moment is infinitely and wonderfully complex. And of course, we're going to stumble. It's not going to be perfect. That's okay. It's a practice. Simple, but not easy. Like that. This concludes part one of episode six, Secular Buddhism, an interview with Ted Meisner. This program was sponsored by the Spiritual Naturalist Society. Learn more and join our community at spiritualnaturalistsociety.org. Our music was composed by John Clemisrud. J.N. Forrest is our technical director, and Daniel Strain is program director. Our hosts are Daniel, J. and B.T. Newberg. Please share our program with others and join us next time on Spiritual Naturalism Today. Today.